Good morning. Good morning, everyone. How are, you, how are we doing? Good. I want to uh, begin welcome everyone. We're glad to be together today. Um, I want to, uh, first of all, tip my hat uh, to all of the iron men and women. Any of those here today? Like, we're, all, we're all like, we make fun of you because you're doing this, but we're all secretly envious uh, of you. So congratulations to you guys. And um, also we uh, hosted for the first time um, a conference here this weekend with our college students, Carson and, and his team, a lot of our staff members uh, did breakouts and such for our college students. A great success, really proud of the effort. We had a lot of different speakers come in and, and participate in a lot of different ways. And what a great thing for us to do. Uh, and we just wanna celebrate um, you know, those things. And also um, today, uh, we're continuing our series called It's Complicated. And the series is about money. All right, so when we get that, if you, are, if you were here last week, uh, you know this. And here's the thing I will tell you, that my aim in this is not to get you to give um, to our, our church, but rather we were exploring what we actually believe about money, what we think about money, how we use money. And my hope and prayer as we will be able to see something differently than what we've always seen and recognize that it's complicated. If you have your uh, Bibles, we're gonna be in Luke chapter 16. We're gonna be all over the place this morning a little bit. Uh, Luke chapter 16 specifically, and it's one of the oddest parables uh, that Jesus tells uh, in the Bible, super odd. And also at the end of our time, uh, I will be addressing uh, and doing a prayer for what's happening in the Middle East. So I've tried to be really careful and mindful about that. Um, Last week, I, I basically the, the end of the message was uh, basically to consider how you see money. What does it do to you? What do you think about it? What does it make you feel? Uh, what's the drive for it? What's the disdain for it? Like, where, where are you with that? Um, this morning, uh, I'm going to add some layers to that because we're going to have to have conversations about it. It's funny, you know, um, our, our finances are often like our faith. They kind of run parallel. Like we have a, a faith that's very personal and we often think that means it's private. And we same thing with our, we have personal finances and we sort of think that they're private. And most people, they hide any trouble they have until it's too late, right? Because it's embarrassing. It's, it's all the things that we all feel. And I just think we have to get better at a, as a community. Um, and I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about the community, us, who we are and how we think about things. And this is what I want for us to explore. Um, the thing that we can acknowledge, right, is that when we think about money, and for those of us, uh, depending on where you are, right, if you struggle um, not to have enough, it feels terrible. If you have more than you need and you don't have enough to give to everyone or to do everything for everybody who asks you, that also feels debilitating. Like it's, just, it's a very complicated thing of how we relate to our money. And you're going to see in just a moment, Jesus actually adds some of this, uh, some of the complexity to it. Uh, in fact, most of my problems uh, with, with things that bring tension to my life aren't so much about what I think about things, it's what Jesus thinks about things. You ever notice that? I'm fine until I can encounter what Jesus thinks. I'm like, whoa, this, this, is, this is troublesome. And it brings a level of complexity and it brings a level of submission. It brings a level of, if I'm, if I'm gonna walk by faith and learn how to live in the way of Jesus as my king, right? that's, that's usually where the rub is. And we're gonna, we'll look at that. So I introduced a couple of terms to you last week. Uh, that I think are important for us. They're, they're kind of new terms. Um, I don't know if we made them up, but we kind of made them up. So this, this may, one of them we didn't, one of them we perhaps did. And, and instead of talking about financial freedom, um, we're talking about financial congruence. And uh, congruence is where things come together the way they were intended to be. It's, it's, a, it's an agreement, it's a harmony 
but it's not just, it's not just um, conformity. It's, it's they, they, there's a purpose. They come together the way it was intended. And so for financial incongruence, they were defining this is like this, that financial congruence is stewarding our money in a way that allows us <clears throat> to contribute to and to create the kinds of things that honor God, that reflect his image and demonstrate his love. And I've deliberately left this open. And here's why, like part of what, I'm, what I hope happens out of this series is I'm not so much trying to teach you what you ought to think about money as much as I am trying to position us as a church to say, Lord, could you help us see something about this that might actually change and shape and create something that we all desperately need? Whether we're rich or whether we're poor, we all desperately need this. And so you're gonna see some things today that are shocking about how, what God was doing and how he was doing it. And that's what I want for us to, to consider, that financial congruence is how you are going to use what you have to do some very specific things, not just to make ends meet. That's, that's a, of course, that's a part of it. But it's to, it's to contribute to, to create things that, that, that reflect what, who God is, that honor who God is, that reflect what he longs to do in the world and it extends that to other people. And that just takes a lot of creativity. It's not about balancing your budget. It's about how do you see the world? It's about how do you see what's been entrusted? This is, this is what I'm trying to get us to consider. And the second thing, as I said, that generosity because a lot of times we know generosity, we give something to someone and they take it and we're fearful they're gonna take it and take it to, and use it for their advantage or, or it's not gonna be a good investment or it's not gonna be some of those things. And generative is the idea that I think goes beyond generosity. Right? We are called to be generative. God's values and his economic system are generative. And generative, and this is how I'm defining it. A lot of people ask, what is generative? This is my definition of it. Generative is the capacity for our generosity to create something beyond what was given. It's not just benevolence. I need a light bill paid, here's money for your light bill, boom, check. It does something. This is, the language of the scriptures is all about generativity. The, the giving and the, the helping of the poor is all about dignity and value and empowerment and raising all those things. There's, there's all kinds of laws and rules in there about how we're supposed to, to our biggest fear is if, we're, if we give money to someone, our biggest fear is are they gonna use it in the way that we want? Is there gonna be a return on our, on our investment? And so we, we have to sort of think that's not wrong or bad. It's just incomplete. And so we have to have ways to think about this. Um, <clears throat> my, my goal, and it's going to be very clear. So I, I'm, I'm going to be very clear. My goal, I know, I know that the biblical principles on finances. I've, I've read Financial Peace. I've written, we've written our own kind of thing. I'm not a, Financial Peace is one thing, and we're going to talk about that um, I know those things. What I'm interested in is how do we consider the economic values of God's kingdom, not trying to mine biblical principles, right, for a modern monetary system. That makes sense? We know how to do that. I want us to get a vision for what does God value when it comes to, because he, he obviously does, Russell, when I said, hey, you can't serve one or the, you can't serve both. Right? There has to be something in there that makes us, that challenges us or pushes us. And, and if money is going to be an ex, a trusted exchange, which is how we define it, also, it's a trusted exchange based upon an agreed upon value. If it's gonna become a trusted exchange, then it's got to be relational. 
I, I just, and this is, this is where your brain's just gonna start getting wonky. We're gonna have to just stay with me. So you have to listen carefully today. The kingdom of God is built, it rests on the rule of love, namely God's love, his source for everything. The way of the world operates in a different sphere or a different rule, and it is governed primarily by fear. Whether we talked about in the fullness series, whether it's the fear of missing out, or in this case, it's the fear of being taken advantage of, or fear of not having enough, or fear of whatever it is, there's sort of two polar ways for us to view this. And what we have to understand is this is a fundamentally different way of life than what we are accustomed to or what we are used to. As I was studying for this and, and praying through this and wrestling through this, um, I, I was struck. I read through a lot of the Old Testament commands. I was struck by how much of the law is not just moral compliance, like don't kill and don't lie, but how much of the laws that were given were around economic justice. Like it's, it's astounding. Are y'all, y'all are like, really? Did, y- did y'all know this? I've read the Bible for a long time. I've just never really noticed this. Like there's, there's whole ways in which farmers are called to tend to their fields. You know what they do? They're to round the corners of their fields. Don't, go, don't take your John Deere all the way out with zero turn and run it in. No, just round it off like you have a Walmart lawnmower. Like you got to do this. Just round it off. Why? So that those who don't have a means could come and they could glean or pick off the field. They had to work, they had to work, but it was available to them. Like this is, if you read the Ruth, the story of Ruth, my people or your people, all the whole thing, that's exactly what she was doing. She was living off the rounded edges. There's all these provisions. You find things in there. Um, Exodus 22 is this idea of, of compassionate lending. Do you know what it says in there? And you, I'll read it. It says in Exodus 22, um, verse 25 and 27, it says, And listen, for people who love to take the Bible literally, here we go. 2227. If you lend much, 25, sorry. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Do not charge interest. Uh, Do not take your neighbor's, and then it just goes on. And and the whole point, I don't want to get in the the minutia, but the whole point is that there's to be a compassionate lending system. It doesn't say that you shouldn't lend, it just needs to be compassionate. So, so this, is just one of, this is just one of the things, there are numerous. I'm gonna give you just a couple. Number two, Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, one, it says this, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. How good would that be? Especially if you've got a lot of credit card debt. Capital one, deuces, baby, seven years. This is, like, this is exactly what it says. Every seven years, Cancel debt, right? It's, it's the idea of compassionate lending, of debt cancellation. You realize in the Hebrew system, they had a year of Jubilee where everything was returned back to its original way. They, they, historians believe this never happened. They, never, they were never able to actually pull this off. But it was there, sort of a reset, a hard reset. And every seven years, you're just to cancel everybody's debt. And in fact, there's a provision in here that says if someone asks you for money, in year six, you can't be mad at them that they're gonna, you have to forgive that debt a year from now. Don't be mean to them. That's what it says. 
And then you, get, you keep reading, what you basically see is an economy of generosity. An economy of generosity. Governed by trust. Will this work in the world? Absolutely not. But it is not so among you. That, that's what we've got to find. How, how much are we willing to learn how to live in this way of life under the rule of God's love? That love produces or drives in us, we'll use green since that's money, an economy built on and based on trust, based on trust. When God was forming his people into a nation, making arrangements for them to live as his treasured possession in the world. Like there was other things going on. There were other ways of doing things. There wasn't wasn't the only people on the planet earth when this was happening. He delivers them out of Egypt and into the land of promise, into freedom. And he takes them through the wilderness. And wilderness is kind of like a school of transformation, if you will. Because he goes there and one of the first thing he institutes is the Sabbath. And do you know what the Sabbath is directly connected? Of course, it's rest. This is what it was in creation, right? God, on the rest on the seventh day, he, he, made, he honored the Sabbath, he made the Sabbath day holy and he instructed us to keep it. But then when it gets to, when they're moving out of bondage and into freedom, he says to make sure you honor the Sabbath day and he connected it to provision. This is all Deuteronomy 8, right? When he, when you, he, was, he fed them with manna in the desert, only their daily bread. You know how many days he gave them bread? He said, only get enough bread for each day on six days And on the sixth day, you need to get double the amount of bread because I'm taking a break on the seventh day and I'm not creating manna. Now think about this. If you only knew you were getting enough bread, like you're not not sure where your meal's coming from and manna falls on the ground and there's a ton of it. And he says, take one day's worth. What are you gonna do? Stash just a little bit, just in case. You know what happened to it when they did that? It rotted and got maggots and it smelled. So everybody knows that you did it. What is that? Oh, dude, you, so you took some, didn't you? Right? This is what's happening. This whole thing was connected to provision, to provision, to how God provides for us. Remember last week we talked about this. How do you see God's provision? Of course, it's the, the money that we receive is part of that. But we've got to get our eyes bigger than this. We've got to understand this. this is, it's directly connected to this. The Sabbath, um, the thing that what God was teaching us Right, is he was teaching us that we have a tendency to hoard, to protect, to be fearful, to overthink. And I'm going to use the word calculate because I don't mean that in, in the way like wise. I mean it like we're always calculating to figure out how this is going to work or not work. If this bread doesn't come tomorrow, I need to make sure I have enough of it today. How am I going to grab grab two days and then tomorrow he's not going to have, I got to make, all these things are a part of God teaching us how to navigate between these two systems. We're going to calculate, try to take control ourselves. Are we going to learn how to trust and walk in a different way? And then worse, when we forsake the way that God calls us to live, we will inevitably cause harm to another. So here's my assumption. When I read, and again, this is an oversimplification when I read all this, here's my sort of takeaway. That God's sort of saying to us or his assessment of us, that humans have the propensity and in fact, we are likely to create systems that will advantage one group of people 
at the expense of another. Can you believe that we would do that? Have you ever seen that? No, right? This is exactly what God is trying to prevent in all of this stuff. He's like, you're likely to do this because this is going to be the pull. You're likely to do this. Let, let's, let's be careful, right? In one system, see what we think is that we, we have to build on a foundation of God's love for us. We have to learn how to trust. And out of trust, out of this place, is where we find the capacity for generosity that leads right to this idea of being generative. That, that's where the, like, this has to be sourced. This has to be sourced from somewhere. And so what happens is we get over here, we start calculating. When we learn how to do this, we are tempted to hold, right? We're tempted to, 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 to sort of grab it. This is the fertile soil. Like this is, the, this is where greed comes from. Greed is fundamentally fueled by fear. It comes out of that place. That's, that's, I'm not saying we're greedy, but this is when we, when we tend to either like, I'm gonna get as much as I can or I'm gonna whatever, or we tend to hold or withhold. It's all coming from somewhere in here. And I'm not saying you shouldn't balance your checkbook and I'm not saying you shouldn't use good financial principles. Those are all givens. I'm saying that we have to learn how to live in a much different way. And this is what we need vision for. And this is precisely what Jesus is pushing on, right? When he says this, our, our, when we start to try and control and manipulate and man, manufacture and preserve things, our discernment is likely to take a hit in the... Um, in exchange for control. I mean, think about it. The reason you have a lottery list, does anybody have a lottery list? If you win the lottery, you know what you would do? The reason you have a lottery list, why? It's because you don't have to trust anybody for anything anymore. That's it. That's why I have mine. And so, so this is what happened. This is the power of money. This is what Jesus is, is fronting to us. So there's a story in Luke chapter 16. Um, there's a money manager, a rich man and a money manager. That's all we know about this guy. And this whole run from 15, really from 13, 14, 15, 16 is all, all kind of one thing. Jesus is long rattling off parables and stories and teachings. And this particular chapter 16 is a parable, it's a teaching, and then it's another uh, parable or story. Um, and so I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but essentially a, a, a rich man, his money manager was accused of wasting his possessions, was called and he said, you need to give me an account of what you've been doing because I'm pretty ticked and you're likely to get fired if I find out this is true. Now contrast this with what just happened with the person who squandered the possessions of his father in the parable before. You remember the story of the prodigal son? The kid goes off and squanders his father's possessions and his father welcomes him back. And now we have another exchange of someone who squandered possessions. And this time it's the, the, the rich man has kind of been exploited and his, his, his guy is taking money. Now they believe what's likely to happen is what this meant was, this may have been a Jewish person who's not allowed to charge interest, right, according to the law. And they probably had inflated some of the prices of interest. And this is what's gonna unfold in just a minute. So basically, he says, I hear you've been messing with my accounts. And the guy says, oh my gosh. And he goes back and he thinks to himself, what am I gonna do? And he says, I'm, I'm, I can't work because I don't have, I'm not strong enough to work and I'm, I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do. So he goes to a guy who owes him money. He says, hey, you owe my boss money you owe him 900 gallons of olive oil, right? He says, I do. He said, why don't you write me a check for 450 of those and we'll call it even. He says, done, perfect. He goes to another guy, he owes him uh, 1,000 bushels of grain. He 
He says, hey, I know you owe my boss a thousand bushels of grain. Yes, I do. Um, why don't you make it 800? He says, done. Now, how do you think this is gonna, so now he has extra, right? This guy's got some money. How do you think this is gonna go over this boss? Right, he basically settled his debts for half on one and 80% on another. And what they think was probably happening is he basically settled it out so that basically gets rid of the interest, which means they were both kind of in a conundrum because what is he gonna say? Hey, you, you, you took less. He has no justice in court because what he's doing is illegal and what he's done is illegal. So they have this kind of thing going on. So the boss calls him back in and this is what I'm, this is Jesus telling this parable, by the way. Are y'all following me? Luke chapter 16, verse eight. The master commends the dishonest money manager because he acted shrewdly. It's complicated. <laughs> and then he says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And there you have it. <clears throat> Do we think that Jesus is saying, take your money and use it so people will think you're cool and they'll hang out with you. And if you do something stupid, you could go move in with them when you lose it all. Do you think that's what he's saying? Probably not. So if it's not that, what is it? He's clearly saying we gotta find a way to use this thing in this world. We gotta find a way to use it in some kind of direction. I think he's starting to tip his hand towards the idea that this has to do with a relational way of us living as his people. He's, not, he's certainly not commending dishonesty. He's, he's, he's recognizing that in one system, you're gonna get yourself into a conundrum that you are likely not able to get out of. And we have to learn how to use our money much differently. That's the challenge. There has to be a shrewdness and a wisdom to how we navigate the world systems. All those things are true. And then he sandwiches or he adds on. To, I'm not, I don't have time to go through all the details, but, but that's, that's what I think the idea is. And people disagree on this. It's a, it's a crazy story but it's connected to, to all this other stuff. And then he goes into this teaching, this little section of teaching in verse 10, and he says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much, right? Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with very much. He is moving us into this kind of economy. Whoever can be trusted, whoever learns how to see this as a trust, not a way to get what we want, but a way to represent what we've been entrusted with. It's about stewardship. He also confronts the myth or the idea that what we tend to think is if I had more, I would be more generous. And that is untrue. He says very clearly, if you don't learn how to be faithful with a little, right, the odds of you being faithful with much just are really, 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 you know, high. So if you've not been trustworthy with handling worldly wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been entrusted, uh, uh, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, he will give you property of your own. And then he adds this line. This is Luke's version that we read in Matthew last week. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. What I think we're trying to learn how to do here is to break the cycles by which we fear being taken advantage of by others that keeps us 
from doing things or participating things or honoring God, reflecting his image and demonstrating his love. I think he's pulling us out of a place to calculate and instead, how do we trust? To use worldly wealth. The economic model, what God values in this is generosity and in fact, something more than that. He, it, it's, it's generative in its nature. And it's built on trust and here's the key because we all know and we just can't do this loosely because so many people and so much of our culture is not trustworthy. So the challenge is that we have to be formed into the kind of people who can actually participate in this way. Does that make sense? That's part of the challenge. It's not just about managing your money well. It's we gotta become the kind of people who can participate in this way. This is, listen, I'll be very clear. This is not an advocation. All I'm talking about is not, we're not advocating socialism. So you go, oh, Mike's a socialist. I'm not, I think, I like, I like capitalism. I think it's a great system. Democracy is still far and away the best system human beings have figured out how to do on this planet. It's precarious, but both of these things, like they're not evil, but both of these things are dependent upon the character of those who participate in them. And that's where the problem is. That's where the problem is. So this is all reflective. It reveals something about who we are, who we are. So again, my goal, and for this, right, we just have to have vision. We're gonna have to, you're gonna have to say, God, can you give me, we're gonna have to learn how to see this together. My goal is for us to consider the economic values of the kingdom of God. Um, N.T. Wright is, you know, fast become one of my heroes. I read a lot of his stuff. Um, I watched him do an interview and then subsequently read uh, some articles by him uh, about money and economy. And he was uh, talking to, uh, to a group of investors. Um, and uh, this is um, out of a different resource, but this is what he says. And I love this because this explains or at least helps bring to a level of, succ of succinctness what I want for us to consider today. I can't tell you here's three things you're gonna do today. I want you to consider some things today. The key to all of this in the opening verses, this is from N.T. Wright talking about Luke chapter 16, the whole chapter. The key to it all is in the opening verses. It is all about faithfulness. It is all about faithfulness. Money is not a possession, it's a trust. God entrusts property to people and he expects it to be used for his glory and the welfare of his children, not for private glory or glamour. Money also, according to this passage, points beyond itself to the true riches which await us in the life to come, which is not just going to heaven when we die. It's not you're gonna have more crowns in your, or jewels in your crown. It's something about the way we live in this new creation that God is forming and calling when he returns and he finally makes everything as it should be. That's, that's the idea. It's something bigger than we can really get our heads and our hearts around. And this is what he says. What are those things? We can hardly guess, but they are true riches which will belong to us in a way that money does not if we learn faithfulness here and now. If we don't, we shall find ourselves torn between two masters. This is the tension that most of us feel. So here's what I want to encourage you to do, is you have to consider what you believe you've been entrusted with. Um, we're gonna be doing a, a, 
a course. It'll start in, uh, actually start in January, February. But one of the first things that, that I always ask people to do when we're dealing with budgets or money or anything else is you just have to know what you have and what you spend. You just have to know. You have to begin to say, what have I been entrusted with really? What comes in and what goes out? Because you can't determine faithfulness, right? Just based on like, well, I think I'm, you, know, you can't do, you have to have some real you know, uh, facts to this. But what you can do is start to say, Lord, what have I been, how do you see what you've been given, what you've been entrusted to? Much of my life, right, I always complained to God that I did not have enough. And oftentimes that felt so true. Starting a church is not a lucrative venture, right? There were many times it was just hand to mouth. There were many times you're trying to figure out, do you give money back to the church or do you pay a bill that you have obligated yourself to? And, and what's funny is what I learned how to do probably about two or three years in after I just complained to God, I kept saying, why don't you let me do this? I can do this. And there's a whole story behind this. Things that I tried to pursue and just wasn't given license to do. Learning how to trust. It was always about learning how to trust. What I started doing at the end of every month when I would pay all the bills and sometimes I was just like, I don't know, you know, you, sometimes you're juggling stuff, you're robbing Peter, all the, all the things that people have do when you're trying to make things meet. You know, we started the church on, um, on credit cards, which is a dumb idea. Um, <clears throat> in fact, we were, I have time for this. We were told, when we started Port City Church, we were told you need to raise $150,000, put it in the bank, put it in the bank. So that way you can run your church. And I thought, yes, that's what I want to do. And God said, and again, I'm saying God said, because this is like the dialogue in my head. You're trying to figure out, is this indigestion or is this like really like the Lord saying something? And he's like, that's not what you're going to do. I'm like, what are we going to do? He said, you're going to learn to trust me. And I'll tell you what happened is all the decisions that we made in the early days of this church were always, they, they felt to me as terrifyingly dependent because we signed a lease for a small little office space. We had, to, uh, we had a little place in Rolling Grice Middle School we had to pay for. We were trying to do other things that just required us to use money to get things going and keep things moving. It was always hand to mouth. I remember at the end of our first three months, we looked at our budget needs and our budget, or the amount of money we spent and the amount of money we took in, and we broke it down by weeks. And at the end of those first three months, we had spent $2,307 a week, and we had received $2,212 a week. We had like five bucks. If we could have bought coffee every week, that would have been good, right? It was that close. And what I found was that had we had $150,000 in the bank, all those decisions are just like this. There's a sign right there behind this hallway it's the original sign that we bought to hang up at Rolling Grice Middle School. It's white vinyl, and it says Port City Community Church. It has 796-355. That was our first number and our cool website. This was in 1999. Websites were super cool. And we put it up there. It was $88, roughly $88. We had to have a board meeting to determine if we could spend the money. Right? That's manna. And what you learn is you learn humility in the desert to prepare you what God has for you in the future. We have to learn to trust. So my point is, wherever you are, right, begin to ask this and talk to someone. 
If you're here and you're struggling, we have people talk to someone. Do not do this alone, right? There's a trustedness in this that not only comes from you and God, but learning to trust one another if we're gonna really build this thing the way we think God wants us to. If you're here and you have a more than you need and you're like, you know what, I feel like, listen, you talk to me, I got lots of generative ideas. And they ain't, they ain't about getting, I got lots of generative ideas that I think are gonna make a difference. You just talk to me, I got lots, if you want help, I'm happy to help you. You just email me, we'll have coffee, we'll, we'll make this happen. Like there's lots of things that are, because we want to be trusted. We, we want to be trusted with what God, I mean, faithful with what God has entrusted to us. And that, that's what you have to do. So that, that's fair enough for what you do, All right? You got that? All right, perfect. Now, um, <clears throat> and, and, I, and I, I want for, I know this is uncomfortable to try to talk to people about our money, but you, we just have to find ways to do this if we're going to learn how to live the way that I think Jesus actually wants us to and will empower us to. And we just have to learn this together, okay? Uh, next week, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about how um, what it looks like to be faithful with the small things. And we'll give you some real tangible takeaways next week. So now, one of the things that I do whenever um, I'm praying for, uh, for difficult and complex issues, uh, be it any, any of them, is um, I'm a big believer in Romans 8 that says God intercedes for us with longings that are too deep for words. And so I often start there. But I also feel that it's important to put words um, two things. And I usually write, when in those moments, I write out my prayers. And it takes me a while because I don't want to be cliche. And I'm not, I'm not dumb. I read. I see all the stuff. And, and so I want to be really careful and say, Lord, you know, what is it that you are asking of me and how we do this? And when I, whatever the issue is, and then I try to write them down. So what I've done is I'm going to give you some context. Then I'm gonna, we're going to pray together. And I'm going to read to you the prayer um, that I wrote and you're wel welcome to have conversations about this. Um, but like I said earlier, it's usually not what I think that's the problem. It's usually what Jesus thinks that gives me the most trouble. So this is what <clears throat> I want to say. I am, have been, and I am heartbroken over the war in the Middle East. Um, it goes without saying, but needs to be said, that the terrorist acts committed by Hamas on October 7th against civilians are horrific they're deplorable and all the things we can use to describe it. It's, it's terrible. And I understand, completely understand the necessary response to those attacks. I get all of that. We are all aware of how the world responds to violence. All of us know. My concern is how we, as God's people, posture ourselves in that response. The challenge is not, should we pray for Israel and the peace of Jerusalem? Of course, of course we should do that. The question is how should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? What are the implications of our prayers and are they consistent with the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God that he has made available to us? When I consider what God intends for his people, it often runs counter to what I have long thought about a lot of things. When I consider the way of the kingdom that is ruled by Jesus, a lot of my initial instincts and inclinations, they get challenged and often challenged pretty hard. Jesus confronts our sensibilities. He clearly confronts our sensibilities. When he said, you have heard it said, you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. This leaves us with an enormous tension between our desire for justice and our need for protection 
and the call of Jesus to enemy love. And we need great discernment on how we reflect God's image and bring his love to bear in these extraordinarily tangled events. And God has uh, revealed what it is that he intends. God intends to create a new humanity from every tribe and every tongue and every people group. And God intends to create this new humanity reconciled from everything that separates and undermines all that he intends. And thirdly, Jesus is the peace for which we pray for. And his cross is the way that puts to death the hostilities that rage. Those are clear from scripture. Those are actually direct quotes from the scriptures. So what we know is that our prayers for the shalom of Jerusalem are intended to bring about peace and reconciliation, never war and revenge. Let our hearts be broken for the suffering of both the Israelite people and the Palestinian people without feeling like we are condoning terror or justice. Let us long for the reconciliation of all things. So as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we recognize, we must recognize that peace in Jesus' view isn't simply the absence of conflict, but the rather the presence of his rule and his reign. And so I want Jesus to reign in a way that brings about pockets of this reality on earth as it is in heaven, right in the middle of the chaos, as God has intended for it to be, and in fact, as he longs for it to be. That this would somehow produce or push us towards what will be ultimately final. For me, the place to begin in our prayer for the Middle East is at the feet of Jesus in humble prayer to offer words that align our will with his and to intercede on behalf of all those who are entangled in this terrible war. Lasting peace in the Middle East isn't likely to come as a result of war, but of prayer and of God's work. And so our prayer isn't a response, just a response to our hopelessness that we might feel as we have to watch this from afar. But our prayer is actually a declaration of our trust and our hope. And so my aim is pastorally is to provide words to engage us in this way of thinking, in this way of praying, in this way of life, believing that shalom is both God's heart and God's work. So here is how I am praying. Would you join me as we pray together? Our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive their identity, we know that your heart is for the reconciliation and the return of one new humanity, people of every tribe and every tongue and every people group. We know that the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection makes this available. This is how it is in heaven, but it is not yet so on earth. We are not naive, Lord. We are aware of the terror inflicted by terror groups and we are aware of the need to defend and protect. We are alert to how the world can be and the desire for the enemy of the enemy to steal, to kill, and destroy. In this world, to the victor go the spoils. Might makes right, and only the strong survive. But your intention is not simply our survival, but shalom. Lord, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? Would you help us to see what you want, what you see, so we can want what you want? We are not naive to the ways of the world but we are called to live as children of the light, citizens of the kingdom of God. We long for your reign, 
a beautiful rule governed by love. And may there be pockets of this beauty that act in miraculous ways as salt and light and leaven to bring hope and comfort and peace in the Holy Land. Would you be gracious in the suffering and exacting in your justice? Lord, would we be formed by compassion and live in a fierce hope for the reconciliation and return of all that you have intended until King Jesus returns and makes it fully and finally so. We offer this to you in the name of that coming King, Jesus Christ, amen.